Okay, I'm going to make this quick because it's 2 in the morning and I got to go to work soon. So this is part 4 or 5. I don't know. I'm tired. This is Matt from the Hotbox. Uh, in this part, you will hear from Heidi from Montana Connect, uh, from Jim Gindry, the uh, Montana Medical Growers Association guy, and, of course, the great Irvin Rosenfeld. He's going to tell you some stories, talk all about being uh, the federal medical cannabis patient numero dos, and, uh, yeah, enjoy. I'm going to bed now. Bye. I'm going to do a little housekeeping before we start again, and I hand it over to Jim. Um, a couple of you may have heard it already. I did my housekeeping calls in a couple other sessions earlier, but if you don't know who I am, I'm Heidi Hanford. I have Montana Connect Magazine, and I co-sponsored this event with the MMGA <coughs> because this industry is very important to me. What happens to it is very important to me. When I met Jim, I met him in March of this year at a uh, med fair in Missoula. As a matter of fact, I didn't even have my checks printed yet. I had the counter check from the bank. And the first thing that I did after I learned about the association, and I heard the word association. I've grown up in Montana for 33 years. I understand what an association is, how it works for you, and what it does. It's the power of the people. It's the voice of the people. It's what Montana legislators understand. When you approach them as, a, as, a, as, a, as an association, they're going to recognize you. Okay. It's already been proven in the newspapers. We had a great meeting in Kalispell. I'd, I'd like to, Ed Doctor, stand up. Where's Ed Doctor? If he's not in here, drag him in here and make him stand up. This man had a great meeting in Kalispell. Brought the public in, brought in uh, the uh, media up there and had a great meeting with positive newspaper results. And they went and photographed our logo on the hat and immediately branded our organization statewide. That was huge, okay? But what I'm trying to get to you here is we live in Montana, and the way the Montanans associate and work with each other are they understand associations. We have a stock growers association. We have a livestock association. We have a growers association for grain, wheat, barley. They all have it. That's what we are right now. We are association. We are trade. So when I saw this coming, the best check I ever wrote in my life was to this man right here for the MMGA for $150 for executive membership for this magazine. I've driven miles and hours, spent days, been to more MMGA meetings than probably anybody in this room. I believe in this organization. I do it 500%. And what I'm asking you right now is to do the same. If you can't dig in your pocket and give them some money, bring people to meetings. Support your chapter directors. If we're building a new chapter in your area, drag people there. Fill your cars. I do. You do it too. I challenge each and every one of you to make the best chapter you can. We've got some rocking chapters in the state right now. Let me tell you. You go talk to these chapter directors, you're going to meet some good people. Right here, we got Charlie over here in Bozeman. we got Taylor back in the back. Ron is around here someplace. Ed Doctor. Where's Ed? There's Ron. Stand up, Ron. Actually, why don't each of the direct chapter directors stand up so you can be recognized? But if you live in these areas, we have and then we have Ed in, in Kalispell. When you see those guys, give them your contact information, get to their meetings on Facebook, get there so you can get the events and the updates. We send out the meetings, we try and have them, we have to have them in a public place. So if you have a public place we can have them, we'd love to patronize that. But that is what we're doing. So help us with this organization. If you can help, support, donate. We have the 
tables going on out there with the live silent auction stuff. Um, bid on that when you can. You know, tonight at dinner, after dinner, when we're dancing, I'm going to auction off a toilet roll of toilet paper. I am. I'm just going to do it myself. We do it in Lincoln. It's a little thing that we do when we have a fundraiser for sick people there. And I've seen rolls of toilet paper in Lincoln, Montana, sell for $600. Okay. So, what can cannabis users do? We'll find out after dinner, won't we? But anyway, that's some of the stuff that's going to happen. Come to dinner, please. Come and support this organization. Make it the best that we can make it. Be the best that we can be. Represent, be responsible, and walk proud. And thank this man right here. I'll tell you, he is dedicated. He is So let's keep this thing going and make it a good thing. And also our prepaid legal thing, anytime that you guys do anything with a prepaid legal, funds from that are going to support the MMGA. So let's get involved and make it work. Show them that we mean something, our voice means something. Thank you, Heidi. Well, none of us would be here tonight if it wasn't for the patient, because that's why we exist. And in the opening slide this morning, we had on it, no patient left behind. Well, some patients are no longer with us, and they've had some very difficult struggles in the course of their life. Towards this movement, towards being able to have medical cannabis available to them. So we want to take a couple minutes tonight. I'm going to ask Tiny to come back up and recognize two people who are no longer with us, but that were very significant in why we're here. Tiny, would you take care of that? I would be so happy to. Um, I have to tell you, if I get a little emotional on this, it's because this is very near and dear to my heart. These two patients, um, I didn't have the privilege of saying that I personally knew them, but in researching them and talking to people who knew them and people who had been affected by them, and I remember reading about them in the paper. You know, and I, I, I remember, and that's why I have on here remember, because we all need to remember these folks. They died for us. They're the people who were there before us. Those are the people who were in the papers before any of us, and they, they really suffered. So that's my part. Now, I, I have a written part that I want to read, because it's truly who they are, and a lot of people have forgotten. So I would ask, I'm going to read and let people know who they are, and I'm going to ask for a moment of silence. Okay. So the first one is Robin Prosser. We have Robin right over here. For over 20 years, Robin Prosser, who's a musician and a mother from Missoula, had suffered from an immunosuppressive illness similar to lupus. Her muscles stiffened, and she suffered from chronic pain, heart trouble, nausea, and migraines. She was allergic to many prescription drugs, and others simply did not work for her. Beginning in April of 2002, at the age of 45, Prosser staged a 60-day hunger strike to draw attention to her plight. She sought assurance from local law enforcement authorities that she could grow her own marijuana so as to maintain a steady supply of medicine without fear of arrest or prosecution. However, she was told that she would be arrested if she was caught in possession. In May of 2004, she was charged with possession of marijuana and drug paraphernalia. <coughs> Pardon me. Charges that could have brought her up to a year in prison. The police explained that the reason she was charged was because Montana did not allow the medical use of marijuana. In September 2004, the charges were dismissed as long as she remained law-abiding for nine months. When Initiative 148 was passed a few months later, it seemed her troubles with law enforcement had ended. 
However, in the spring of 2007, federal law enforcement officers intercepted the medicine for license caregivers sent through the mail. Following the incident, Prosser had great difficulty acquiring the type and quality of medical marijuana she needed to alleviate her symptoms. Sadly, she experienced excruciating pain in the following months until on October 18, 2007. She took her own life. And I, I quoted her directly from a YouTube video I witnessed on YouTube. And that is why I'm so emotional right now, because all Robin asked for was to be safe. And she wasn't. And she didn't get to be, and this is what happened to her. And we need to remember her, please. Okay? Now, on Scott, that's another one. Um, boy, that guy, he was dynamite. I heard people talk about him with so much love. Such a great guy. I wish I would have known him. But um, Scott was diagnosed with, as a child, with a rare congenital disease caused by a lack of certain enzymes, which over the course of his life spawned diverse and severe physical pain and other serious health problems. When he was diagnosed, doctors said he probably wouldn't live to see his 20s. He was 34 when he died at his home in Dillon in September of 2008. Friends and family say medical cannabis was a key reason for Scott's surprising longevity. In February of that year, federal agents and local police raided Day's home, right here in Montana, seizing 96 marijuana plants from the garden he had spent more than a decade meticulously caring for. He and his wife were charged with production, possession, and intent to distribute dangerous drugs, all felonies. Scott's health deteriorated following the raid because he could no longer find adequate supplies of high-quality medical cannabis, and his constant fear of jail time led to bouts of depression and anxiety that exacerbated his illness. Supporters of medical marijuana say Day's case demonstrates the serious gaps <coughs> in the law and in law enforcement officials' appreciation for legitimate medical use of marijuana. And that is what happened with Scott Day, the stress of being prosecuted for what we now have a right to walk around every day and be able to treat ourselves, took his life and killed him. So when you're out there and you're representing, remember these people. Don't disgrace them, please, ever. And let's give them a moment of silence and then she'll pick it back up again. Thank you, Heidi. You did better than I <laughs> You know, it's interesting with this, uh, a lot of people that are in the medical cannabis business now in Montana um, weren't in this business before. And they come from a lot of different professions, a lot of different jobs. Some were construction workers and have been out, out of work and this is potentially a way for them to uh, make a living. Some of them are business professionals that have run businesses before and they've looked at this as an opportunity to help, again, the patients. Well, one of the things that the Montana Medical Growers Association decided to do, we had a board meeting a little while ago, and said, you know, what we should try to do at each of our annual conferences, and I'm here to announce our next year's conference will be at the same time as this one, so everybody can plan ahead for it. It'll be one year from now, so we look forward to the changes in the next year. But one of the things that's important is there's a lot of people through the course of the time between the time that these folks have had their issues 
and the challenges that forced even be here today. So we are going to recognize somebody else tonight, kind of as in a first annual award uh, by the Montana Medical Growers Association. So what I'm going to do is just read a little bit about this person and then introduce him, and we've got something for him. Uh, this individual has over 30 years of experience in the field of media and public relations, campaign and gra grassroots organizing, and government lobbying. The vast majority of it is Montana-based, mostly relating to controversial and technically <coughs> complex environmental and public health issues. Both in Montana and New York City, he also has created and supervised national and international publicity programs with consumer and business-to-business -business marketing objectives for corporate clients from small to Fortune 100 caliber. In 1994, he became founder, a founding partner in a strategic communications group a Hella-based uh, campaign and issues management company. Among its other accomplishments, they created a statewide campaign that successfully reversed public opinion on a property tax ballot issue in 1994. He then has directed his strategy towards including the defeat of a 1996 anti-mining initiative that polled in March of that year where it had over 80% public support. But what really happened was in 2004, and that's why he's here tonight. He managed the strategy and the communications for the campaign in favor of an initiative that he helped write. That's Initiative 148, which set a national record in its margin of public support for a compassionate statewide medical marijuana policy. He later founded and now directs Patients and Family United, a nonprofit public education and support group for Montana medical cannabis patients and pain patients. Tom, would you please come up? Tom Dobear. Of getting to know patients and feel their gratitude and to see how 
this uh, horrendous national policy obstructs the fulfillment of so many people's lives and comfort uh, is just uh, it was just a, a huge awakening for me, and I'm thrilled to be part of a now growing, maturing community of people in Montana who are dedicated to defending patients' rights, fulfilling their right to use a God-given natural plant as they need in the privacy of their own homes, and to do other things to end some of the ways the drug war still obstructs uh, what's common sense for so many people. So, thanks very much. This is Tom Dobera. says thank you so much for your outstanding service to the medical cannabis community and for your patient advocacy. Montana Medical Growers Association first annual meeting and symposium 2010. Next, uh, next speaker to come up because you've had a chance to hear from him a little bit throughout the day. Maybe you've had a chance to talk to him outside. Uh, but I'm going to read what's in the program because anybody that's listening to this or, or watching it over the internet doesn't have the benefit of this. So I'm going to go ahead and just read this uh, as I introduce her. Urban Roosevelt is a senior vice president of investments at Newbridge Securities Corporation in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He also is one of four people that are provided for and use medical cannabis under a federal program established in 1983. Initially, there were 13 patients in the program, and four are still alive. Bird <coughs> was diagnosed with a serious bone disorder after a baseball injury at the age of 10. I, I, I hope you'll share that story because it's a, it's a wonderful story. You shared it with us last night. Um, he is a federal patient with a very unique tie to Montana. In the 28 years he has been receiving medical cannabis, at no charge, by the way, from the federal government, there were never any studies performed on him or any of the federal patients. That was until Dr. Ethan Russo conducted the only study performed on four of the six surviving patients of the Federal Compassionate IND program at the University of Montana. And that is, that is really historic as well. Because the things that we are doing in Montana for the patients and for medical cannabis is different than any of the other states. And that's why the legislators need to look at this state uniquely as Montana, not as any other state. He's going to discuss tonight how he became one of the select few American citizens to have the U.S. government actually grow and supply his medical cannabis. And why he's only one of four remaining federal patients under this program. He's focused his time on educating people about the benefits of medical cannabis and the lack of the studies and research that have been done, and while helping to further the use of medical cannabis both in this country and worldwide. He successfully fought the government for his right to treat himself with medical cannabis, and he's going to share his experience with us on what it's like to be a federal marijuana patient. He's also going to talk a little bit about the future necessity of hemp and why that future necessity is now not tomorrow. And his third point that he's going to address tonight is how can parents deal with children with devastating disorders. But Irv, before you start, we'd also like to come up and present a plaque to you as well. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. 
appreciate the opportunity that Jim and Heidi and Ed and all of you have given me to come here to the great state of Montana. And what I'm hoping to be able to do is to make some rhyme and reason of what y'all have accomplished so far and to help you ho hopefully move forward and continue all your good work. And um, appreciate uh, the, the plaque, and it'll be uh, prominently displayed in my office. Do you want to read it to the crowd? Do you want me to read it? You can read it. <laughs> Irvin Rosenfeld, in recognition of your outstanding national patient advocacy, thank you for helping and including the patients of Montana in your efforts. Montana Medical Heroes Association First Annual Meeting and Symposium, 2010. Thank you. Well, as I was introduced, my name is Irvin Rosenfeld, and fortunate or unfortunate, I'm one of the four federal patients that receives medical cannabis from the federal government. And age 10, it wasn't an injury playing softball. I, pardon, I was playing shortstop age 10 years old. I hit the winning, I hit the uh, go-ahead run-in in the top of the sixth inning. Bottom of the sixth inning, the first two guys got up, they hit out. Third guy got up, got a triple. Next guy got up, got a, you know, next guy got, gets up, and that, that's a tying run, and he gets a ground to be a shortstop. I field the ball, I throw to first, first baseman catches it, we win the game. So, 10 years old, you want to take your glove and you want to throw it up in the air, yay, we win. Okay, so I go to do this and my arm is totally paralyzed. Now I just throw the guy out of first base. And I go and his arm is not hurting, but it's totally paralyzed. Uh, the fright that came over me. My parents came running out, the coach came running out and said, what's wrong? I said, I can't move my right arm. The hospital was across the street. So how long did it take them to get me in a car and get me to the car to the emergency room? A minute and a half, two minutes? We get out of the car, my wrist is, my arm is fine. No problems at all. Ridiculous. We went in, took an x-ray. The radiologist says, ah, when you were a baby, you broke your wrist when you were young. The jagged bone sticking out from it healed wrong, and the nerve got twisted around it, and that's why I went paralyzed. It eased up, and that's why you're fine. Don't worry about it. So went home that night, had dinner. And my mother, who used to work for my great uncle, who was head of pediatrics at Johns Hopkins, she worked several summers for him, said, you know, he would have known if he broke his wrist when he was a baby. It would have been some discomfort, we would have realized it. So she took me to an orthopedic surgeon the next day, and that's when they discovered these bumps all over my body. It was a very, very disorder. The doctor said what it was called, multiple congenital cartilaginous exostosis. Now, that was a mouthful, especially for a 10-year-old who was perfectly healthy. They came home, and the doctor said it's a very rare disease, and he's got one of the worst cases I've ever heard about and you need to get him to a research center. That, night, that afternoon or evening, we called my great-uncle, who was, again, head of pediatrics at Johns Hopkins. Uh, we called my great-uncle, who taught pediatrics at Yale. We called my sister, who was head of nuclear medicine at Disney. And we told him a diagnosis, and they said they checked the center was Boston Children's Hospital. So at age 10, we, two days later, I'm at Boston Children's Hospital in front of the top physicians in the country for, for this disorder. They started explaining to me how bad this disorder is. And remember now, I'm a healthy 10-year-old child who only had one problem, I couldn't throw a ball for, five, for a minute or two. Okay, they're telling me that I'm going to have all these devastating dis dis uh, surgeries and that there's a good chance I may not outlive my teenage years. But hopefully with their help, and, and they're, they're making me understand that I would make all the decisions and I would be the one to decide. And that's one of the things I want to touch on what I said is from talking to parents with a devastating disorder. My disorder was one that the doctors could not make the decisions what to operate. The parents couldn't make the decision because I had over 200 of these tumors which could become pragmatic and surgery. They could operate every week on me if they wanted to. So they set the parameters. 
what surgeries I could have. If one tumor grew too quickly, it's got to come out. It goes malignantly die. If it grows into a growth center, it's got to come out because the odds are it's going to grow internally. You're going to hemorrhage. You're going to break off. The clot's going to break off. You're going to die. If it grows into an area that bothers you, painful-wise, you've got to have that out. It's, it's not good. It's going to kill you. So these were the parameters. But I had to make the decisions. My parents were there for me. The doctors were there for me. They gave me the medical books. They taught me everything. I made all the decisions for so my entire life. But other kids don't have that benefit. God forbid you have a child, five, six, seven years old. I don't care what it is. They're diagnosed with whatever. It doesn't matter whether it's cancer, whatever, leukemia, whatever the disorder is. To the parents, it's devastating. To the child, they know no better. Okay, it's not good, but they don't know any better. They can deal the hand that's dealt them. They can take care of it. They can persevere. They can go through antinorphic chemotherapy. They can do this. They can do that. They can persevere. But God forbid, let's say, that that child doesn't make it. After four operations, the child's nine years old. It's devastating to the parents. And they lost their child. But to the child, it's not that bad. So what I tell parents is this. If you have a child that has a disorder, the doctor says this child has this. This is what we need to do. And the parents do it. Wrong. That's not how to do this. You go to the child. You tell, explain to the child, four, five years old, three years old, I don't care what age. You explain the situation and what's happening. You try to get to their level to make them understand and say, this is what we want to do. This is what we're thinking of doing. How do you feel about it? You incorporate them in their care to make them feel like they're part of it. Okay, and parents don't do that. So it's something very simple. Something else I'll touch on now is, let's say you're those parents and you've got a caring physician. That physician's really just done everything for that child from five, six, seven, eight, and that child dies. That doctor's devastated just as much as the parents are. I mean, because that doctor did everything. That's when you need to go to that doctor and go, Doctor, you know, all you are is an MD. You're not a GOD. I've been on that side before, okay, and I've said that to doctors. I've also been on another side of doctors that I've seen, and that's the doctors that know it all. You've met them, I'm sure. The doctor knows everything. Even with this disorder, this thing, medical cannabis, they know it's bad because that's what they've been taught, but that's what they've learned, and that's what they believe, but they know everything. That's when you say, excuse me, doctor, all you are is an MD. You're not a GOD. It's all on how you say it, reflection. So anyway, I was diagnosed with this disorder. I had surgeries. I had different narcotics, different drugs. I was a homebound student in Virginia. They wouldn't let me go to public school because they were scared I'd hurt myself on the school grounds. Plus, I couldn't walk. I mean, the first operation I had on my leg, uh, they didn't, first of all, they didn't know if I was going to live. And then second of all, they didn't know if it was going to be like, amputated from, for uh, malignancy. Well, neither of that happened. But growing up, I had good values in life. Why did God do this to me? Why did he give me something devastating? In Jewish religion, which I am, it's the religious Jews say, well, be thankful it's not worse. I'm thinking, well, I'm so good in this community, and, and the synagogue, why did it happen altogether? So I never really knew. But when you have something bad, you want to make something good come out of it. I never knew what that could be, but that's always what was in the back of my mind. So now, in high school, this is late 60s, kids started doing illegal drugs. Healthy kids were doing illegal drugs. To me, this made no sense at all. Why would a healthy person do an illegal drug? Here, I've got to take all these legal drugs. This does not make sense to me. So one day I'm going to the school, because that was the one day in the spring that the, it was clear weather, my legs were feeling pretty good, and so the school system would let me come to school, just to be with my kid, my friends, everything for the day, change classes with them and everything else. So I went to the principal and reported that I was going to come to school that day. 
And I said, you know, why are kids doing illegal drugs? And because, you know, here, God, I wish I was healthy. And he goes, would you talk to your kids that way? Would you talk to your fellow students that way? I go, of course. So, like, one of the chapters in my book that I've got out here is how I invented the D.A.R.E. program. Because I did. In the late 60s, I was advocating to students my own age, be thankful you're healthy, don't do illegal drugs. Well, they did. I went off to college. I graduated. I went to career college. I went to Miami because of the warm climate. Well, there, everyone used medical cannabis. Or cannabis. It wasn't medical, but they used cannabis. Or marijuana at that then. And I wasn't going to do that. I was a, a healthy... I was a non-healthy person, but I was doing well. I had survived. I was taking all these narcotics and drugs, but I wasn't going to use a legal drug. Well, I was exposed to it to give in to peer pressure to make friends. You all know the story. I learned all of a sudden that it didn't get me high. It didn't get me for effect. About the tenth time I did it, I sat and played a game of chess. It was the first time in five years I had sat for more than ten minutes. I hadn't taken any narcotics, morphine, quaalude, Valium. I had all the prescriptions. The only thing I did was smoke this garbage, marijuana. So that made me think, you know, is there any medical benefit to this marijuana? We all know, make a long story short, I took 10 years. It took me 10 years, but I took on the federal government. When I was convinced in Miami that cannabis worked for me, that, that medical work was cannabis, that cannabis was legal in this country from 1860 to 1937, manufactured by Merck, Eli Lilly, all the major pharmaceutical companies, mostly in tincture form, used for marital disorders, but prevalent for muscle relaxant, anti-inflammatory for pain. And I said, well, ah, that's what it's doing for me, and I'm not getting any euphoric effect. Plus, it seems to be enhancing the Dilaudid, the Quaalude, and the other medicines I'm taking. I don't seem to need to take as much, and they work better. So when I convinced myself of that, I said, I have to have it. I'm not a criminal. I'm a patient. And my doctors, of course, and my family said, well, you know, it's illegal. I said, if I stay down here in Miami, I'm going to be arrested. I know it, because I'm going to use this. So I went back to Virginia, my home state. Give me liberty, give me death. Patrick Henry, you can do something in Virginia you can't do in other states. Like, kind of like here in my town. It's a different type of state. And I was able to persevere. I got the state law changed in Virginia. I got the governor, Governor Dalton, to sign it in 79. Had the state crime commission behind me. Had the state police behind me. And why did I have all this behind me? University of Virginia Law School, my congressman. Because I did it the right way. And what did the chief, the head of the state police, when I went public? I thought they were going to arrest me. The day I went public for public hearings, I went public because I had to. The head of the narcotics in Virginia, Beach, uh, Virginia said that if we have uh, marijuana prescriptions, then we'll have more illegal prescriptions. And his job was to stop illegal prescriptions. So one of the state senators says, so what would be your answer? He said, my answer is to close all the pharmacies. If you close all the pharmacies, there'll be no more illegal prescriptions. Makes sense. So that's when I decided I had to speak. So what I point out to them is we have a problem with obesity in this country. Big problem with obesity. But we're not advocating closing the supermarkets and the restaurants to cure it. So therefore, you cannot close the pharmacies. I need this. And when I finished speaking, the head of the Crown Commission, the head of state police, came over to me, sat down beside me, and I admitted to having marijuana. You know, uh, the chief of police of hometown, of course, in Virginia, by the way, was on my side, so I had him in my corner. They sit down and said, do you realize what you just did? I said, I did what I had to do. They said, do you realize what you just did? I said, look, I've been on a stretcher, being wheeled in surgery, not knowing if I'm going to live. That's, that's bad. I said, what I just did, I had to do. They said, you really don't have any idea. I go, look, if you're going to arrest me, arrest me. They arrest you. We're here to help you. We're here to stop crime. Okay? We're here to stop criminals. We don't want to hurt patients. We're here to help you. What can we do? So even in 1979, people knew it. And here we are today, all these years later, and what have we accomplished? 
Well, in a way, we've accomplished a lot. I mean, Bob Randall and I started this. It started in 78, by the way, was when the Compassionate Care Protocol started. And I, I became in 82, so it's been 20 years. And what have we started? I'm looking out and seeing patients. Okay, that's what we started. That's what we built. That's what we've grown to. Okay, and I'm very proud of what we've done. We planted the seeds when back in the 70s and early 80s. There was no, no, no knowledge of medical cannabis. I mean, we thought we were the only two people in the country that knew about this. Okay, we were the only two public ones. And now what's happened? 14 states, District of Columbia, 40% of the population now are state, state uh, laws. That's great, but we're not there yet. Now, why am I here in Montana? I mean, I don't just travel to any state. It's hard for me. Being a stockbroker only means that a lot of money on a daily basis. My clients would prefer me being in the office. But, again, make something good come out of something bad. That's what I've always tried to do. So here you all in Montana. You notice I'm Southern. I say y'all. But uh, y'all in Montana have done great work. Okay? You've passed a law that took the crime away from your sick patients. Now, I personally am against all state laws. Tell you right now, point blank, I'm against I'm against your law, I'm against California, I'm against Oregon, I'm against Washington. Why? Because it should be a federal issue. It shouldn't be a state issue. It should be federal. States shouldn't have to do this. But what has the feds done? They said, screw you. We held hearings from 1986 to 1988 under DEA court-ordered hearings. Judge Francis Young listened to everything. People that were in favor of it for one year, people that were against it, they listened to. He then took one year to decide his, his decision. His decision is cannabis was one of the most benign substances of mankind. It should be made Schedule II. The Fed said, screw you. We're not going to go along with it. Okay? Clinton. Now, when Clinton was running for president against George Bush Sr., now, George Bush Sr. had just shut down the Compassionate Care Protocols in 92. Why he did that is Bob Randall, the first patient, had gotten a protocol together that was a fill-in-the-blank for AIDS patients. He sent it to all the AIDS organizations. They bombarded the federal government with thousands of protocols. Bush Sr., running against Clinton, didn't want to look soft on drugs. So somehow, he arbitrarily got the program shut down. The 13 of us that were receiving were grandfathered in. There were 28 patients that had been approved by DEA, NIDA, and FDA never got it, and they never did. Now, my friends in the Democratic Party contacted me and said, Irving, can we get the medical marijuana behind the, the voice and the people behind Clinton? Well, of course, Bush had just shut down the protocol, so it, was, it wasn't going to be that difficult. I said, what's in it for us? He said, Clinton wins. He's going to nominate Jocelyn Elders for Surgeon General. The first thing she's going to do is saying, we're not sure if medical marijuana works or not, but we're never going to know unless we have patients that we really can study. So we're going to reopen the compassionate care protocols. We're going to be the compassionate party. Yeah, I've heard that before. Now, I am getting skeptical. Well, you can talk to Jocelyn Elders. Well, I talked with her personally. Okay. I think it was, she was in Arkansas, some hospital in Arkansas, something I called. I don't know. Anyway, she tells me exactly what's going to happen. Sure enough, Clinton wins. Sure enough, he nominates Jocelyn Ellis for Surgeon General. We think, ah, we've got it. The first thing she does is she stands up and says she thinks all drugs should be legalized, completely polarizing her issue mm. and our issue. Second thing she taught, said is she thought masturbation should be taught in schools. <laughs> well, needless to say, Clinton never did anything for us at all. The Catholic Care Protocol never got reopened. So now here comes California in 1996. Again, I'm against state laws. Okay, however, the Fed, you've had your opportunity. You've blown it. At least the states are taking away the crime from their patients. So now California, then Washington, then Oregon. 
Well, this was getting to be fun for me because now we were actually winning. We were actually getting somewhere. Okay? And now we come to Montana in 2004. Y'all pass a law. Now, I had nothing to do with Montana. I didn't do radio shows like I did in other states, you know, and try to help it along. I didn't. Y'all did it yourself. To my knowledge, I don't really think many people came into this state. Y'all did it yourself. Very good. doing it to yourselves again, yeah. <laughs> only the other way, okay? You've taken a good thing, and you've dirtied the water. So to give your opposition now a platform to try to stop the good that you've been doing, and I cannot see that happen. Now, we've got a great majority of people in Montana here that seem to me to be very, very well-educated, good intentions, and wants to do things the right way. To me, what's the right way? I've always said that cannabis is a medicine. It's a prescription. I get a prescription, okay? Unlike y'all, mine is a prescription, okay? Just like uh, insulin or anything else. My doctor and two other doctors are the only three doctors in the United States that can write a prescription for this. Now, I haven't taken morphine or any other, any other drug since 1990. But let's just say the three of us right here we want to get OxyContin, okay? So we go to this doctor, and somebody takes, somebody, a receptionist or whatever, not even a medical person, takes some notes or takes a questionnaire that the doctor's put it together, and they fill out the questionnaire, and then the doctor, you go and see the doctor, the doctor reads a questionnaire, and you've got a bad neck problem. And, and he reads the questionnaire, and you've had a minute and a half, takes a minute and a half, oh, okay, I understand, okay, here's your prescription for OxyContin. Now, I walk in, they've already taken my information, and I've got a bad leg, okay, I've got a bad leg. And the doctor, same pain specialist, reads this, you know, reads this, takes about a minute and a half. Oh, yeah, I see this, oh, yeah, oh, oh, yeah, you need it, okay, here's the prescription. Oxycontin, now gives it to me. Now, she goes in, she's got terrible menstrual pains. Oh, that makes sense, okay, you know, she needs a, you know, Oxycontin, whatever, oh, I can do that. Gives the prescription. Now, in five minutes' time, that qualified physician has given out a Schedule II narcotic to three people in five minutes. Is that correct medicine? No, that is not correct medicine to do that. Okay, so what do you do? Do you pass new laws to stop that? No, you don't need to pass new laws to stop that. What you need is your medical board to oversee medicine. That's simple. We're arguing that marijuana, cannabis, is a medicine. If it's a medicine, then you treat it as a medicine. It's that simple. Now, granted, there were, there were recommendations that were given out in Montana that never would have been given out if it wasn't for these clinics. So some good was done. But the little bit of good that was done far outweighs the bad that was done. Because, granted, your physicians, a regular physician that you go to when you get sick, should be the one to write your recommendation. They didn't take care of it. But they don't want to do that. Because A, they're scared. B, they didn't learn this in medical school. They learned how to do this and to give you this pill or do this and give you that pill. That's accepted. Accepted medical practice, but medical marijuana, medical cannabis. No, they didn't learn that. So we've got to go the extra step. We've got to educate them. We've got to educate them because they weren't educated in medical school. So how do we do that? Well, I'm a member of an organization called Patients at a Time. Patients at a Time has been around since 95. Every two years, we hold a conference. 
We bring in the top scientists, doctors, nurses, patients from around the world, from around the world to present what they've discovered, what they're working on in the cannabinoid system. These are the doctors, our doctors, who've, who've discovered the cannabinoid receptors, they have the cannabinoid system. Okay, these are the scientists, these are the doctors, this is our organization. Every two years, now, federal government says marijuana is not a medicine, keep that in mind. Federal government says it's not a medicine, so no way. Okay. However, every two years we hold this conference, any doctor that wants to attend, the AMA, the American Medical Association, sanctions that doctor to get CE credits for his medical studies. Well now, if the federal government says it's not a medicine, why is the AMA giving medical credits to a doctor to hear about this? I don't know. Uh, American Nurse Association, great organization. Well, gee, they do the same thing. Isn't that amazing, even though it's not a medicine? The ANA allows nurses to attend this conference and get CE credits for medical use? Gee, I wonder why they do that. And then, God forbid, the doctor can't get to the conference, because like our last conference, uh, let's see, uh, where are we? We've been to California a couple times. We were just in Rhode Island. That's where we were recently. And, well, they couldn't attend it. Well, that's okay. If you can't attend it, you can go to either our website, medicalcannabis.com, or go to University of California, San Francisco, their website. And you can download our medical conference, and doctors can pay a fee, a cheaper fee than they would for other CE credits, and they can get CE from online. Well, gee, isn't that amazing? Doctors can get CE credits online for medical use, Nurses can get credits for medical use, AMA sanctions, and ANA sanctions, but the federal government says it's not a medicine. There's a problem there, education. That's what this organization is about. So when you go to your doctors who don't want to give it, that's when you try to tell them, hey, the AMA, the ANA, sanctioned this conference. They sanctioned education of this. You might not have learned it in medical school, but they sanctioned this. Therefore, before you tell me that this doesn't work, be a doctor. Look into the research. Look into this. We can put you in touch with the top clinicians in the country, in the world for that matter. So if you're not sure about this and you want to learn more, we can assess we can necessitate that. We can do that. That's what patients out of time stands for. Okay, patients are out of time. We've got to change the laws, which is what y'all did in 2004. So I don't want to see it go backwards. The opposition brings up as far as in the workplace. Now, I'm a stockbroker. I handle a lot of money on a daily basis. And all my clients know it. What I say to my clients is this, very simple. Have you ever met anybody, so when they get to know me, they don't know me, have you ever met anybody that's ever taken on the federal government and won? How about a show of hands here tonight? How many people have taken on the, know of somebody that's taken on the federal government other than myself and won? Anybody know anybody? One person, one person in this whole group. So it's very rare. Well, that's why I tell the people, you know, I've done that. I've taken on the federal government. I've won. If you want that expertise that I use, that I just take on the federal government, how I use my investments, then you want me for a broker. If you don't, I understand. In the workplace, I get an euphoric effect, I'm able to do this. Now, other people do get a euphoric effect, and they're in the workplace. The law says this, and three state Supreme Courts have held it, that if an employer wants to fire an employee for having metabolites in their system, they have the right to do it. Period. No questions of ifs, ands, buts about it. You're wasting your time if you go to court to fight this, as of right now. Because federal law supersedes state law. And federal law says that it's illegal. 
However, what I want to say to employers is this. Most patients, whether they're taking OxyContin, whether they're taking cannabis, whatever they're taking, are very usually responsible patients. The prescription says, don't operate dangerous machinery until you understand how this affects you. Well, the same thing works with cannabis, and people are smart enough to realize that. They're not going to put themselves in jeopardy or in harm's way. If it affects them, some people, man, they smoke a joint, they go, whoa, man, I am wasted. Well, they're not going to say, well, I've got to leave for work in 15 minutes, let me go smoke a joint and get wasted. You know, they're not going to do that. And to the employers, you don't have to worry about employee abusing this. Vice versa, there are some people, such as myself, who don't get any fork effect. So therefore, half hour before they go to work, it might just be the best thing medically for them. It might take the edge off of what's wrong with them, and they have a much better productive day at, at, at work. So each individual has to be decided upon. But there has to be substantial reason for, I think, an employer to go against an employee just because they have metabolites in their system. There has to be a reason, not just a standard you know, drug test or something on that work. It just you know, shouldn't be that way. But it is. Now, I try to come across as not the long-haired hippie. Okay, you see, I'm dressed. When you all go to meet representatives and fighting your own battle, I always profess to people that you need to look better than the people you're talking to. Okay, what that means, when you go somewhere, and again, I know this is a, this is a more... This is a more rugged area to where your coat and tie isn't as important as, say, in New York City or Miami or Fort Lauderdale. I understand that, okay? So again, as long as you look very presentable. But do me a favor. You're representing me. Okay, I've fought long and hard to get to where we are today. You're representing me. Don't go in a tie-dye t-shirt. Don't go with a peace sign on. You know, you don't need that because if you have opposition. They're going to say, that's why we're against you. Okay, understand something. We in this room... Or at an A. Okay, in, in, in the alphabet. We're at A. The people that are against us are at Z. Okay? You're never going to get them to come to A, where it's very rare. What we need to do is get them to M. We need to get them in the middle. And what that entails is this. The other side talks about, and we do too, we shouldn't. We talk about the war on drugs. War on drugs. Sounds good, war on drugs. A war means somebody wins and somebody loses. Okay, we don't want anybody to lose. That's not what we're here for. We're here for the patient. That's what we started this. That was the whole advocacy that Bob Randall and I started this. It's for the patient. As, as, as Jim said, this is a patient issue. This isn't about people making money. This isn't about people seeing how many people they can run through a clinic charging $150, an app, $150 per, per person and see if we can run 75 patients through here today. It's not about that. Okay, granted, you might have helped some of those patients get recommendations they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. But overall, the damage that's done puts us four steps back. Okay, and that can't be done. We, when we represent, when we talk about medical cannabis, we represent the entire movement. Everybody. You're not just representing yourself. That's, that's, that's vital. When Bob and I, and again, Bob Randall was the first patient. He was the one that was arrested in 1976 for growing marijuana for his glaucoma. He was able to prove that it worked for his glaucoma. They found him not guilty for that reason. He then got the government to give him marijuana. And what did he do? Did he go home and sit down? The government told him to. Fed said, we're giving it to you, and nobody else is ever going to get it. 
Now go home and shut up. Okay? Uh, too dumb to be mom, I think is what his words were. And it's what he said. Is that he would rather trust the, 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 the population, the people, than the trust the feds. So he started speaking on college campuses. That's when I met him. That's right, well, that was before, right before I met him. What do the feds do? Well, they couldn't take his medicine away, because that would be mean. So they went to his doctor in Washington, D.C., and said, we want to give you a research project to do at Duke in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's a $250,000 grant, but you've got to leave D.C. and you've got to go to Raleigh, North Carolina. Well, guess what his doctor did? Left D.C. and went to Raleigh, North Carolina. Well, now Bob Randall had no doctor. Without a doctor, he had no prescription. Without a prescription, he had no medicine. So he went public. Steptoe and Johnson, one of the most renowned international law firms in the world, is headquartered in D.C. They saw the story, and they became his lawyers. They ended up suing the federal government. They filed a lawsuit against the federal government on a Thursday. The next day, the federal government came in and gave, started the Compassionate Care Protocols, which is what I'm under, in 1970. He started that in 1977. I met Robert Randall in 1978. He turned my protocol around. I had University of Virginia Law School behind me. How did I win? Pure luck. I came to God, and God helped me. Uh, we were getting ready to go to court. This was after 10 years of fighting. University of Virginia Law School was going to sue on my behalf in federal court. FDA decided that they were going to hold hearings for me. They were going to allow me 15 minutes to convince this 20 board of 20 doctors that my project was valid. And again, they had no intention to give it to anybody else, just Bob. So I had to go up there, take a shot. So I went there. I spoke for 13 minutes. And it was a committee of 20 doctors, and we had opened it up to the public, so there were about 100 people in the room, a lot of doctors, a lot of clinicians, just regular people. That's the Food and Drug Administration in Fisher's Lane in Rockville, Maryland. And in the drive up there, of course, I had all kinds of thoughts on the 250-mile drive. I was driving there that morning. However, one of the things I said is my doctor and I had studied that for the last 10 years, when we had cannabis, my intake of Dilaudid was decreased, synthetic morphine. When we didn't have marijuana, cannabis, my intake increased. And we'd stayed this for 10 years. And that was part of what I stated. I finished speaking after 13 minutes, and I said, that, you know, that's in my, oral pres my presentation. And the, the chairman said, are there any questions? The guy raised his hand. Okay. The guy stood up and said, well, you know, I really have a question, more statement. He said, I'm a visiting oncologist from Venezuela. <coughs> he said, I'm here studying pain treatments for cancer patients. And I've learned in your country, just like mine, the best treatment's Dilaudid, synthetic morphine. And if you and your doctor have studied that when you intermittently have marijuana but you don't have enough and the lotted seems to be decreased when you do, this needs to be studied with a full complement of cannabis. You know? And when he said that, you could see the committee, the face, it's like, oh, shit. We just lost. So when he did this, it was like, oh, my God. So then the chairman, his mouth was open, so I said, Thank you very much. Are there any other questions or comments? I mean, I was being the chairman now at this point. <laughs> so there was, there was no other word. Nobody else raised their hand. So I turned to the chairman. I said, Mr. Chairman, that concludes my presentation. Well, he, he's sitting in the middle, you know, nine people on each side or nine or ten. He looks this way. They all look the other way. They don't want to see him. He looks this way. They all look the other way. Okay? He looks at me. He says, Mr. Rosenfeld, I think I can speak for the entire committee that your, your presentation was very elegant, very convincing, and you will be approved. And so that's when I became the second person in the United States, thus increasing our ranks 100%. <laughs> and to this day, Ross tax money 
pays for my marijuana, my cannabis. All right. so, and I, pre- I appreciate it. I do appreciate it. So that's one of the reasons, another reason why I'm back here. I can't go in each state to thank each person. So, you know, just feel very special that I came here. <laughs> now, another issue. We're in Montana. Okay? I love to be that trip into Montana in 2001. It was was really neat. I mean, it was it was different. It was rugged. Uh, it was April. It snowed. That I didn't like, but whatever. I dealt with it. But the individual people here is what I got to notice. Is the individual people they do things. Okay, kind of like Virginians. You know, I mean, there's a federal government, but there's less. Well, what did y'all do in 2004? There's a law that says that marijuana Schedule One has no medical benefit. What did y'all do? Y'all just said, well, that's what D.C. says. We're not going to do anything different. No. You said, screw D.C. Okay? We're here in Montana. They're not doing anything for us. They're not doing anything for our patients. Screw them. We're going to do our own law. And that's what you did. Congratulations. I think that's great. But y'all are a bunch of pussies. Y'all are a bunch of wimps. Because this is Montana. What does Montana do best? That's why, not, again, I'm an outsider, okay? But my, what I see is I'm hearing agriculture. Oh, yeah, yeah. Agriculture, agriculture. That's what y'all do best. Well, I see a lot of land out there that could be utilized for hemp, okay? Now, what does our country do with hemp? It says that we can sell hemp all day long. Yeah. Isn't that great? We can sell, the federal government gives us the right to sell hemp. That's fantastic. Only we got to import it from other countries. <laughs> now, wait a minute. We got a problem with employment and with domestic productions, and yet we can do this, we can sell it, but you just got to import it out of the country. Well, that's DC telling you what to do. I'm just kind of surprised because I would think Montana would say, FDC, okay? They're not going to help us, then we're going to go against them. Okay? And it can be done. That's just it. It's simple. You get seeds. You plant it. It grows. Okay? <laughs> hemp is a great product. I don't have to tell you all. I mean, and I'm not an expert on hemp. I am an expert when it comes to medical cannabis. I will go into a court of law, any talk show, anybody in the country, and I will tear them apart. Okay? I won't do that with hemp. There are better people than me in this country that can argue the hemp food. But we know enough about the plant, how good it is. And, and again, I'm not a farmer. I've never grown anything in my life. If I had to go on a farm or a ranch, I'd be dead. I mean, I just wouldn't survive, okay? So, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about in that respect. But the point being is, the point being is, I'm hearing that you plant hemp, and it, it puts nutrients back in the soil for other crops the following years, okay? I mean, that's a good thing, I would think, you know, as a farmer. I would think that's a good thing. And so we have unemployment. We have land. We have a product that we can import and sell. Well, why don't we just grow it here and sell it here to our own people? Gee, what a great thought. Well, that's what you need when you go talk to your politicians about keeping this medical cannabis law that you've got. At the same time, talk about helping your farmers. Talk about the agriculture of hemp. Talk about D.C. is the one that says we can't do it. That's that same D.C. that said we couldn't have marijuana. Medical marijuana. That's the same DC that did this or did that. And look, over the years, I'm sure there've been other, other rules that DC said it's going to be this way, and you said no, we're going to do it this way. 
I'm sure there are other, I just don't know. I'm not, I'm not from Montana, but I'm sure there are other things the federal government is not like than Yoda. And so therefore, you know, tell the federal government, hey, you know, we're going to do what's best for our citizens, medically speaking and economically speaking. And it works both ways. And with the economics, again, what you all have here, the way you keep the price down on the cannabis for the patients, I think is ultra important. Keeping records, okay, for the patients, what strains work best for different disorders, I think is very important. Now, I have a little relationship with DEA uh, because my protocol is under DEA. And DEA realizes, okay, I've talked to them, they realize this is going to happen. What they want is accountability. What they want is accountability. What they want is accountability. That's all they care about is accountability. Therefore, you've got to be so squeaky clean in what you're doing, okay, that accountability is always there. Keep patient records so you can know what works best for different patients. Try to be able to get a database to where that's put together to help everybody so people know. And offer DEA those records, okay? They want them. Offer it to them because the feds aren't researching it. They're not studying it. They're not going to study which different cannabinoids work best for different disorders. Y'all need to do it. And y'all need to present that to DEA, to FDA, and then DEA. Of course, minus names and minus addresses. Okay. But to say, female, MS, 50 years old, this is what she uses for, and these are her symptoms. This is how much she uses this month, or whatever, she, how often she buys, and keep those records. So you have accountability, accountability, accountability. Because understand something. Right now, things are pretty good. There have been some problems, and it could get worse, but things are pretty good. And I'm talking about nationwide. Okay, let's see this attorney general in California wins. And that's California. But you know, this attorney general, from what I'm hearing, is kind of like Ken to Hitler. And so if what he does in California could reflect on Montana, I'd say. It could reflect on the entire nation. Okay, now, what happens in two years if Obama loses? What's going to happen? Have you all thought of that? Yes. Okay, I mean, that's something to think about. Therefore, if you are as credible as you should be, as accountable as you should be, then that's your chance that no matter what happens with different administrations, you all continue. And that's what I want to see happen, is that we continue and enhance this to other states. So if one state falters, it's going to make it tougher on everybody else. And I don't want to see it tougher on other people. I mean, I enjoy coming here. This was nice. This was a nice trip. Why? Because... When I took out my marijuana, I mean, whether it's from my tin can, you know, whether it's my tin can or this is what it comes from, I mean, I go outside, I light up, I'm legal, I can do it. Well, guess what? There are going to be other people out there lighting up their medicine, and they're legal too. And it makes me feel good about that, because I'm not by myself. When I go back to Florida, I'm by myself. Florida's one of the worst states in the country. It's going to be one of the, so that, therefore, I, the problems you're having in Montana, I wish... I had this problem in Florida. Okay, you don't know how lucky you are. Now, you've got a problem in Montana because you've got opposition. You've actually got people that want to stop medical cannabis. About two months ago, I was in Berkeley, California, and their city council was discussing about how they were going to have these facilities, how much they could have, whether the cooperatives could have this, how much they could do, and that was the whole discussion. It was like an hour and a half, and they wanted me to speak last. So it's like if they were going to give me 10 minutes, they said, you know, we're going to do an hour and 20-minute meeting, and we want you to speak last. And one of the things I said is there was a committee here, and I guess the mayor and everybody was there, and I guess there were maybe 70 people in the room. 
hand, and this person says this, this person says that, because I only had a minute, minute and a half to speak. And when I got to speak, I said, you know something, this has been such a pleasure. Because not one person got up and said, do you realize how dangerous marijuana is, or cannabis is, and what you're trying to do? No. They were arguing, how it should be this many plants, should be that many plants. That's what they were arguing, not whether it should be or not. And you've got people in this state now that want to end it. Okay, so that's your first problem. You've got to stop that. Now, your second problem is how much can you have? Okay, how much can you have? Well, you know, that should be up to the doctor and the patient. Very simple. Not up to some arbitrary law. Now, the government gives me nine, approximately nine ounces a month is what I get. Now, the quality is, shall we say, adequate. I appreciate getting it. It works for me as a muscle relaxant, anti-inflammatory for pain. It's kept my tumors from growing. But granted, maybe some different Montana, I don't know, grippy or whatever you want to call it. I'm not sure what the term they use out here. Uh, <laughs> but granted, maybe that I would smoke less because it's a possibility. But the point being is most people that are patients are not doing it to get high. They're, they're not. Okay, I mean, I don't get a euphoric effect at all. They think, they think my cannabinoid receptors are defective. Therefore, I'm getting the full benefit, but I'm not getting the pain benefit. Or the, the, um, the euphoric benefit. Whatever the case may be. Okay, patients usually are not doing it to get high. They're doing it to relieve their symptoms. Therefore, if it takes two ounces, if it takes three ounces, if it takes four ounces a month, whatever, whether you're vaporizing, whether you're using edibles or, or medibles, I love that term, by the way. Okay, that is something I'm going to copy and use. I don't know who came up with that term, okay, but I really got to believe that it was Montana. Okay, because I've never heard the term before until I came here. I've never seen it before. I don't know who coined it. Okay, it'd be nice to find the person actually coined it. But I'm going to give Montana credit from now on when I use that term. Okay, medibles. I love it. But whatever the case may be, it doesn't matter how much you need, it's up to the physician to make that decision. Now, once a physician makes that decision, now on the state medical board, and somebody makes a complaint against a doctor, we'll say, doctor, right over there, makes a complaint against him. And one of the places is he's got a patient, he's got one patient he gives two ounces to, another patient gives eight ounces to. And they both have the same disorder. Okay, so that doctor now says, well, yeah, he does have the same disorder, but let me tell you why I do this. And he has a document. He has a document. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, as long as it's documented. The whole point is cover your bases, cover your butt. That's the whole point. Don't leave anything to chance. Don't leave anything to question. Because our opposition is looking for that. They're going to pounce on it. Okay, they're going to pounce on that. They're going to make you look bad. Okay, if you make, they make you look bad, it makes me look bad. I don't like that. Okay, when I come into a podium, because one of the things I do, when I look at a person, I look at a person, and I said, would I get on a podium with that person? And while I look around here, most of the people here, I would do that. A few people here, I wouldn't. But that's how I equate it. Meaning, are you out there to help me, trying to help others? Or are you out there, more or less, trying to help yourself? If my answer is that I believe that person's not genuine, or that person is misguided, I still don't want to give them a platform to, to, to harm us, to harm me, to harm what I've done. I have enough opposition. I have enough people against me that are not the choir, okay, or people against us. I don't need that. Now, when it comes to what you're all doing here, you've got different factions here that are fighting each other. And 
In some ways it's healthy, in some ways it's healthy, in some ways it's not. But the point is, the bottom line is, every faction wants the same thing. Medical use of cannabis for the patient, cleanest medicine possible for the least dollar. And Johnny Law being out of the way. So when y'all understand that that's what y'all are all trying to do, and y'all have different ways of doing it, well, if we had the right way of doing it, we would have done it already, and we'd have this nationwide. Okay, we've done it. I remember when Elvie got legal. She was the third patient, Elvie Musica. I don't know if y'all know her. She has a lot coming on. And, and she's a fire cat. I mean, she says what's on her mind. She's got half Spanish, half Finnish. She gets legal in 88 in Hollywood, Florida, which is where I live, that area. And she starts spouting things, and Bob Randall in D.C. now is going crazy. Irvin, you got to shut her up. you got to educate her. you got to get her saying the line. Well, we did, because I was a puppet. Whatever Bob said, I echoed, which was fine, because Bob was the greatest. He was the best. But Elvie's her own person. And I said, Bob, if we knew the right way of doing something, we would have already done it. I said, well, I don't agree with what she's saying. Who knows what's right or wrong? So that's something all of y'all have to take into account. Certain people may say certain things, and while we believe it's not maybe the right thing to do, you got to think about it. Now, does it cause our opposition to gain on us? If the answer is yes, then it's definitely not the right thing to do. But if the opposition doesn't gain on what this person wants to do, then maybe you look at it and say, well, I'm against it, but I don't know. Maybe it might have some, you know, it might have some merit. And if it doesn't have merit, then you go to that person and you try to explain to that person why you think it doesn't have merit. And hopefully that person's going to be logical enough to understand that we just want what's best for all of us. And, and this is what we feel like is what's best, and so therefore we're trying to educate. And we're not only trying to educate people against us, but now we have to educate the people that are for us. But that's okay. Because it's new to everybody. All this is new. I mean, I've been 28 years legal. For 38 years in front of the public. I've done numerous talk shows, movies. Y'all see me do all kinds of stuff. So it's easy for me. But when other people get in the spotlight, they don't know. They're new. They don't know what right thing to say, what to do, you know, whether to light up and, you know, in front of somebody, in front of cameras or whatever. You've got to decide whether it's sensationalism that you're looking for or whether it's knowledge that you want people to gain. Now, when I light up in front of the White House, in front of Capitol Hill, I do it for a purpose, for a reason. Number one, it's not legal in D.C. Therefore, it's unusual. Okay. So it, it, it gains more. And I try to show that I'm a respectable person. I'm a coat and tie. I'm taking my medicine. That's all I'm doing. So I'm respectable. I don't go into California and say to the media, hey, watch me light up a joint. Big deal. Everybody's smoking. I don't come here to Montana and say, hey, let me get the media. Let them, let them see me smoke a joint. Big deal. Everybody's smoking joints here. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> so the point is, you've got to know when the media, when you're doing something to help your cause, when you're doing something just to help the media. Okay, that's, that's also, you know, we all come across it. I mean, the media is looking for a story. That's what they do. And normally, I've always said, if 100 stories are done on me, 99 and a half of them are great. There was a half that maybe that wasn't so well. And one just came out last week uh, in the New Times, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, New Times, which is in the Village Times, or Village Press, or whatever now nationwide. And somebody calls me and says, the article came out. They didn't have the decency to call me to let me know. I get a copy of the article, and there's all kinds of things wrong with me. I call the guy up, I go, why did you call me so I could boost proof this before to get you know, things right? Oh, uh, 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 they're not good journalism. That's why they didn't do it. Okay, now suppose they fixed it online, but they're not good journalism. 
And, and, and I knew that because the article I did for them like three years ago, I didn't like the article. When they contacted me this time, I said, you've got to call me and make sure of all the facts I'll grow that they did. So the media is very important. If you control the media, you can control your, your state house. Okay, it's that important. It's get your best people. That article that they did on that, okay, I thought that was, that was very well done. Okay, I thought it was excellent. It was getting your point across. You've got, you've got Kiwanis Clubs. You've got you know, Elks Lodge. You've got the Moose Lodge. You've got all these people. What you need to do, the Montana Medical Growers Association, you need to go to these people's meetings. You need to get a representative to go to these people's meetings and educate. Start from the grassroots. Start from these organizations to educate. Let them know. And again, I'm not only talking about medical cannabis. But remember, I'm talking about hemp. Okay? I want to see Montana lead the way to go against the goddamn federal government. Okay? Uh, now, let's change course a little bit. Uh, here's my book, which I've got, and of course available to everybody. And I'm going to do a little sales prep, but I'm going to tell you why. This book is completely vital for everybody in this room. And why is that? This is the history of the medical marijuana movement in this country as seen through my eyes, the longest surviving patient. Once you read this book, you're going to have knowledge that's not out there. Now when you've got that knowledge, now you're going to go to your state representatives or federal representatives. And you're going to say, here's a copy of this book. You or your assistant or somebody has to read this book. Because if you read this book, you're going to understand where we're coming from, what we're trying to do. So this book is vital. And not only because I wrote it, but <laughs> it, it, is, it is good. It, it, it just, you know, I did it because Bob Randall, the first patient, when he was dying, he wrote his book. And he couldn't enjoy it, he died. And the point is, there are things in that book that if you don't read the book, you'll never know. If he'd have died, all that history dies with him. And four years ago, even though I knock on wood, you know, severe bone disorder, I'm very healthy, I thought, God forbid I die tomorrow. All that knowledge dies with me. That's not fair. And people always tell me, you know, I can do this, I can reach how many people? I mean, I'm reaching you know, a couple hundred, a couple, maybe a thousand online or whatever. That's not millions upon millions. Occasionally you do NBC Nightly News, you do a documentary. That can reach a few million, but if you have a book, it can reach even more. So I took the time, and I wrote the book. Now, it tells the story of a 10-year-old kid who was diagnosed with a severe disorder, had surgeries, had a notion to take on the federal government, had no choice, did that, won. Once I won, now what happens? Well, first thing that happened was, in, I won in November. In March, my wife has a business conference to go to in Orlando, Florida. Now, FDA says I can travel with my marijuana anywhere in the U.S. territories. So I call FDA again. I go, look, I'm supposed to go away you know, to this conference in Orlando. Oh, no trouble. You can travel with it. No big deal. Okay. So last night we're in Orlando. We get there, and it was 30 degrees, so it wasn't warm. So we weren't dressed for it. The last night was a conference, and there's 400 people, 450 people in coat and ties. My wife's in a mini storage business, mini warehouses. And there was a coat and tie, and this was back in 83, March of 83, and you could smoke in restaurants and everything else. We had the second floor of a place called Church Street Station. Downstairs was a big nightclub, and we had the second floor. So we're up there, meal ends, people light up cigarettes, people light up cigars, people light up pipes. My legs are killing me. I want to light a joint. 
Okay, well, my wife says, well, you can't do that here. I go, Eric, I'm smoking cigars, smoking pipes. What do you mean? I'm legal. I can do it. <coughs> no, 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 go outside. I can't go outside. I'm not dressed for it. If I go outside, whatever the benefit the marijuana is going to get from me, the cannabis, then I'm going to lose because of the cold. I'll go in the men's room. All right. Go in the men's room. You know, go in the stall. So I'm puffing real quick. Bus boy walks in, you know, knocks on the door. Hey, man, that smells like marijuana. I said, well, it is. Hey, let me have some of that. No, I'm sorry. It's medical use provided by the federal government. So he went outside, and he called the police from downstairs. Yeah. Yeah, you're not going to give me anything. I'm going to call the police on him. So, yeah, so I go back in the stall, and I'm not smoking, you know. All of a sudden, Johnny Wall walks in, you know, just as an officer. It wasn't a sergeant. He goes... Excuse me, are you in there smoking marijuana? I go, yes, I am. I'm a police officer. Uh, you're under arrest. I go, well, sir, I'll come out. But no, sir, I'm not under arrest. So I come out, and he goes, what is this? I said, this is federal marijuana. I'm one of the two patients because I only took this stuff that receives marijuana from the federal government. And I had it said with the Portsmouth Virginia Police Department that one policeman I figured would call another one. So I had a rap sheet all set up at the Portsmouth Police Department saying federal patient, you know, they verified it, and I'm not breaking any law. So the nice cop goes, wow, that's interesting. Gets up on, gets his walkie-talkie. Yes, Sergeant, there is a guy here smoking marijuana, but he says it's federal use, and he's not breaking any law. What the fuck? <laughs> okay. Guy comes in, and he, he kind of looked like a drill instructor in the Marine Corps, but he definitely acted. What the fuck? And he comes over. He says, this patient's patient, you know, has got marijuana. I pull up my baggie. I've got seven joints in there. I said, officer, I'm one of the federal patients. I get marijuana from the federal government. He said, son, you're in Florida. <laughs> I, said, I, said, I said, sir, I said, you know, I'm from Virginia. I said, but this is a federal program. Federal law supersedes state law. Not in Florida, don't <laughs> So I said, well, sir, I have a rap sheet on Portsmouth, Virginia that says I'm a federal patient, and it does. And would you call him? I'll pay for the phone call. Fuck that, you're under arrest. <laughs> so I said, well, sir, you see here I have a baggie with, you know, with seven joints in it. Back in the hotel room, I have a tin can. I have a tin can with another 250 joints in it. If you're going to arrest me, why don't you go to the hotel and get the tin can with the other 250 joints that says government labels on here and everything else? Yeah. Fuck that. Seven joints is enough. You're under arrest. <laughs> so now, my wife is slipping out. Okay? So, I mean, she, she sees the cops going in. She sees the cops going in. Debbie knows what's going on, my wife. So, and we always told her, I always told her, if God forbid something happens, I'm going to take care of this at the hospital. Don't worry. I'll handle this. So, they go to put handcuffs on me, and I go, Sergeant, Sergeant, look, I'm going to suit and coat tie. I said, I'll follow you wherever you want to go. I said, you don't have to use handcuffs. I said, you think you're the legal arrest. And, and again, you don't. Okay, I'm going to call the U.S. Attorney General's office on Monday. They're going to call Tallahassee. Tallahassee's going to call Orlando, and Orlando's going to call you. And want to know why you think that federal law does not supersede state law when it does. And I, I have these tumors on my wrist. Right now, no damage has been done. If you put handcuffs on me, I could hemorrhage a tumor. And that could cause a problem. And if it does, I'm going to have you arrested for assault and battery. I said, no, I've not raised my voice. And this guy, read the word out of his mouth, was fuck this, fuck that. I said, I've not raised my voice. I've not said a foul word. I will follow you wherever you go. Okay. So he let me walk out. And I will go downstairs. And my wife and everybody at the conference sees me with the police. You know. <laughs> so they take me downstairs. They put me in a car that's got no back seat. It's a bench. You lay across it. 
But luckily, the cop had turned the heat on, so it was nice and warm in there, at least. Okay? I'm there about eight minutes or so. The nice cop gets in and drives me to the police station. And I get out, and now I'm, I, I says, excuse me, officer, I need to stretch my legs. You know, let me just stand here for a while, which is true. I didn't need to do that. But what I was looking for was a place I could hemorrhage my ankle. Of my right ankle, the tip of the fibula is fused by a tumor. So I have to twist the ankle a certain way and hemorrhage it. Ah. It, it hurts, but and, you know, I figured that would save me from being put in jail. <laughs> so I'm standing there, another police car comes up to the, and I realize we're in the back of the building. He, they take the guy out, and, and he's struggling with two cops. They open a door, and he steps up one step to go into the building. And I'm like, aha, perfect. Okay, so I'll wait till he gets out of the way. So I said to the arresting officer, okay, officer, I'm ready to go in now. Okay. So we go there, I hit that step, I twist my ankle, I fall on the ground, I'm not moving. Rob, hemorrhage my ankle, you know, get me to a hospital. The guy the arresting officer, oh, I don't know what's going on. Meanwhile, they go, and other policemen are coming. Now, other policemen are getting criminals are coming in, and they're taking the criminals over me. They then take my tie and my belt while I'm laying there, which I thought was ironic. And I'm telling myself the whole time, I go, you know, you're in a situation that you've got to be under control. You're not a criminal. Therefore, enjoy the entire experience. <laughs> I mean, what else are you going to do? You know, you're not doing anything wrong. Okay, so that happens. Now they go get a nurse. Nurse comes over and says, what's wrong? And I sort of explain to you. The nurse goes off. <coughs> Meanwhile, there are more policemen that come in and everything else. I'm laying there. Nurse then comes back and says, I just talked to the doctor, and the doctor says it doesn't sound that bad, and you can walk. I said, so a doctor by phone made a diagnosis. I said, no, I'm not moving. Get me an ambulance and get me to the hospital. So now, car drives up, and guess who it is? Mr. Drill Instructor Sergeant, fuck you. Gets out, sees all these cops around me, sees me on the ground. Yeah, they, they don't know what's going on. And he goes, what the fuck? Sergeant, Sergeant, he went to step up, and his ankle gave way, and he hemorrhaged. He's hemorrhaging. You see the hemorrhage? And the nurse came back and said they talked to the doctor, and the doctor says it doesn't sound so bad, but, but how could a doctor make a diagnosis by phone? You know? And so, oh, fuck. I'll get his ass up. Takes his nightstick out, starts hitting it on his hand. Okay, like that. Now there are eight cops surrounding us. Okay. He's sitting on his head. I'll get his ass up. I look at him. I said, Sergeant. I said again. You think you have a legal arrest? You're wrong. You didn't want to go to the hotel and get the government can that says government label. I said you don't want to believe that federal law supersedes state law. And I said that loud enough so the other seven policemen heard it. I said, you won't call the Portsmouth Virginia Police Department. I'll pay for the phone call to prove that federal law supersedes state law. I said, right now we have a problem. I said, I've hurt my ankle. I said, but that's the worst thing that's happened. I said, if you touch me with that nightstick, I said, I will definitely prosecute you for assault and battery. I've not raised my voice. I've not said a foul word. I was in a coat and tie, and I'm still in a coat and pants, but they took my tie. (laughs) (laughs) So he put put the thing back down. So... Now, they go, wait a minute, we have a wheelchair here. Oh. So they got a wheelchair, and they put me in the wheelchair. Now, they take me into the, into the prison, into, into the jail. Now, I've never been in a jail before. Okay, this was, this was a, uh, other than to go to the chief of police in Portsmouth, Virginia, to discuss helping help me with medical marijuana in 72, I'd never been inside a jail before. And so they wheel me in, and they wheel me beside the cell. 
Figuring if I can't walk, they don't need to put me in a cell. Okay? So as cops are going by, I'm telling them everything. I'm a federal patient, blah, 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 blah. You know, I'm called the person police department, and they wouldn't do it. Meanwhile, I am seeing prisoners spitting people in policemen's faces. I'm seeing them being hit. I'm seeing bad on both sides. Okay? And whether it's justified or not, I wouldn't dare say. But I'm seeing all this. Finally, three hours went by. So they changed shifts. Meanwhile, my wife had come there with other people saying it's a federal patient, federal patient, federal patient. Finally, change shifts. A woman with stripes everywhere comes over to me, and I'm in that wheelchair. By the way, when they when they fingerprinted and pictured me, they wheeled me in on the wheelchair. They fingerprinted and pictured me. And again, I'm saying to myself, self, enjoy the entire experience. <laughs> just, just flow with punches, you know, just, just enjoy, because it's different, you know. So I did that. They finally let, they finally let me post $250 bail. And they let me go. They let me go. I went to the hospital, took x-rays, proved that you know, it was a hemorrhage. And then we called the Attorney General's office on Monday, and I told him what happened. And I said, you can take care of this, can't you? He says, well, I hope we can. I mean, what do you mean you hope we can? He says, well, it's only you and Bob Randall, and Bob's never been arrested. <laughs> well, they did, take, they did take care of it. And, and so then when they, then they called me back, and they said, your bail money's being sent back. And your four marijuana cigarettes are being sent back. I said, excuse me? There were seven. Well, there are only four now. I wonder what happened. Then, that was Orange County, Florida. Okay, not Orange County, California, but Orange County, Florida. Then another, another little situation. This was around 80, 86, maybe 87. I have to look at my book to figure out what. We had some friends come down from, from Portsmouth, Virginia, and they wanted to go to Disney World. So we went to Disney World. And I don't know if you've ever been to Disney World or in Orlando. Probably all haven't, but there's a big center called Epcot. And Epcot I went to first, the first day. And it's huge. It's a huge facility. When I needed to smoke, man, I just walked away from people, lit up, no problem at all. This was easy. Okay, so the next day we go to Disney World. Well, this park is two by four. There is no room anywhere for anything. And I, there's nowhere to smoke. And I didn't prearrange anything. I didn't even think of it because I was new at all this stuff. Now I prearrange it. But anyway... We go at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and, and my legs are killing me. We get out of something at 5 o'clock, and they want to see it again. It's 30 minutes. I said, perfect. I'll meet you right here at 5.30. So then I look, and I go behind some, some uh, bushes. They can, I can hear it. I mean, the bushes are there. People are walking. I'm right here. That's how close I am. So people could smell it, but they couldn't see me. So I got behind there. I'm smoking a joint real quick, and it, it looked like air conditioning vents behind me. All of a sudden, a trap door opens up. A little girl gets out. She, she looked like she was 10. She was probably about 16, okay? And she said, you better put that out and you're going to be arrested. I said, this is medical use. Okay. So she goes off. I finished the first joint. I'm smoking the second one. I'm just trying to suck it down as quick as I can. Sure enough, here come two security people through the bushes. And you're under arrest. And I look at my watch. It's 525. So five minutes, my wife and the other couple get out. I go, sir, the gentleman, this is medical marijuana by the federal government. You know, they get on the walk to talk. He's saying it's federal. Bring them in. Can we wait here five minutes until my wife and the couple come out? No. So they take me in. I see parts of Disney World that nobody's <coughs> ever seen. <laughs> they then take me to the corporate room, corporate headquarters, up top, you know, third floor, whatever it was, a building, office building. So I sit down in this desk, and guess what's right there on the table? Because this was 86 or 87. It was an ashtray. Well... Heck, you know, they don't want me to take my medicine out there, I'll take it in here. So I pull out my baggie and I light up. Okay? The head of security comes back and says, What are you doing? I said, 
well, if you would probably be taking my medicine out there, I'll take it in here. I don't care. <laughs> they said, you're serious, aren't you? I go, yes. I'm one of two people in the United States that receives medical marijuana from the federal government. He says, oh, we've got a problem. I go, what's your problem? I've already sworn out a war for your arrest. I said, wow, you know, I think you've got a bigger problem than that. He said, what's that? I said, I'm a stockbroker. Monday morning, I'm calling your board of directors on you. <laughs> well, anyway, my wife gets out, and of course, I'm not there, and she knows I'm very prompt. She immediately knew he's been arrested. She immediately knew. <laughs> she calls security, she calls security, and she says, I, I, I'm looking for my husband. I, I think security has him. Well, why would security have him? Well, he uses marijuana provided by the federal government, and, and we think he picked a guy. Well, they checked, sure enough, I was. So they brought her and my, the other couple to where they were. Now the policeman shows up. Now, of course, we're telling them they have a security that's a federal patient. And in the car, in my car, I have a tin can. I have a little paperwork in my car, in the parking lot. And he leaves me. So now the sergeant shows up. And the sergeant says, I've got an arrest for Bernie Roosevelt. Well, I'm so-and-so. I'm having security here. And I'm going to call you on that arrest. And it turns out he's a federal patient. And so I'm going to drop that. Drop the charges. Can't do that. What do you mean you can't do that? I've had a security. I don't want to call you. You know the name on there? That's my name. Okay, that's who I am. You know. Sorry, I mean, if a judge can drop the charges. Mm-hmm. Well, fine. Get the judge on the phone. It's Sunday afternoon. Mm-hmm. Late afternoon. You can't get judges on the phone like that. You need to come with me. You need to come with me. He goes to grab me. And the head of security grabs me on the other side. He's a federal patient. We're not going to let you take him. He said, while you're here now, let's go look at him go out to the car. That is why the other people with our security got to the car and bring in the material. So they did. They brought in a tin can with more marijuana and other things. They said, no, this is illegal. This is, this is, this is not breaking one. I don't care. I've got to take him in. And again, they, he grabbed me. They, and when, when we said that, I said to the officer, I said, officer, and I showed him the letter from, from 83 to Orange County because the federal government sent me a letter saying the federal statute I was under. I said, sir, when this happened in 83, the federal government, the, the state of Orlando was worried about me Furthering the case. I lived in Portsmouth, Virginia now. I now live in Fort Lauderdale. And I shut up and didn't say another word. Meaning, if you want to arrest me, go right ahead. Because I will sue your ass now. Last time I didn't, because I lived in Virginia. I knew they just postponed the cases. Now I live in Miami, or Fort Lauderdale. I can do this. So, they long story short, it took them three hours before they were able to get a judge on the phone to drop the charges. But they didn't take me downtown for that reason. I was able so now there was a good old boy, one of the securities, and, and originally I said, you believe me? He said, sure I do. He said, so they left. He goes, okay, here are four three-day free passes. Dinner has been made reservations at the nicest restaurant for the four of you, and it's on us. Is there anything else we can do? Well, that doesn't take care of me taking my medicine. Okay, we'll do this. All we'll put on the computer in the medical center that if you need to take your medicine, you go there and you can take it. I go, well, fine, that's one part of the park. What if I'm way over? Okay, what if we arrange to call security? <laughs> wherever you are, wherever you are, there's 50 exits for employees in and out. They'll come to where you are. They'll open one of those exits for the employees. You walk 50 feet away, take your medicine, and then come on back. This way you're right where you are. I go, that'll work. So we had dinner. We finished dinner. We got out. We walked out, and there was the clinic. And I went, well, Let's see if this works. <laughs> Knock on the door. Nurse comes up. Can I help you? I'm here to take my medicine. And I'm supposed to be on the computer. My name's Irvin Rosenfeld. <laughs> oh, yeah. And this was, 80, like I said, 86, 87. I forget. So the computers weren't the fastest. weren't the best. Oh, yeah, right here. But didn't say what medicine. They said, what is it that you take? I go, marijuana. 
provided by the federal government. I don't know. Well, there's this room and there's an office for the doctor who, if you were here, he'd be here, but he's not there, of course, Sunday night. And use one of those rooms. I said, well, I'll go in the other room. So I lit up, and of course you light up, <coughs> killing time. And I look, and there's a bookshelf for about 300 books, and there are two books on the bookshelf. And one of them was Medical Use of Marijuana by Dr. Norman Zimber. I went, irony of all ironies. Hmm. Went to the nurse, got a note and pad and paper, and, 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 and wrote a note to that doctor saying, one of the two federal patients in the United States is using your office tonight. <laughs> now, let's see. Another funny story. Uh, oh, yeah, this is a good story. I was flying to St. Louis to be with some clients. They're, they're hunters. They're big hunters. Kind of like y'all, people out here. They hunt all over the world. And then once a year, they have a big cookout where they, where they cook everything. And all their friends from all over the country come, and they invited me to come, even though I never you know, hunted with them. You know, I figured, why not? I love, you know, game and stuff like that. My neighbor was a hunter in Virginia. And so we did that. And I went out there. Before we got there, I'm at the Fort Lauderdale Airport. And there's a dog on a 25-foot leash sniffing all the luggage that's in front of us and the person. And I'm thinking, this is going to be fun. I've got my bag in front of me with my tin can with five ounces of marijuana in there approximately. Plus my baggie with my, my 10 or 12 joints, plus my roach bag with like six roaches in there. So the dog finally comes to our counter. People in front of me, nothing. Sniffs my bag, nothing. Sniffs me, nothing. Goes to the next counter. And the cops in uniform, 25 feet away, or 25 foot leash, the dog was on. So I yell at the cop, I say, excuse me, officer, is that dog trained for bombs or for drugs? And I'm yelling at kind of because it's 25 feet away. He said, for drugs. I said, well, I'm one of the federal patients for medical marijuana. I've got about five, six ounces of marijuana in my bag. <laughs> Great dog, put it back in my bag. <laughs> so the cop, I mean, 25 feet away, he's hearing this. Okay, he orders it all. Like, he just hand signals. Okay, dog comes back, goes in my bag, sniffs my bag, nothing, ducks in all, looks at me, locks it on my wallet in the front pocket. He says, you've got drugs in your front pocket. I go, officer, I have residue all over me. I said, but no, I don't have anything in my front pocket. Everything's in the bag. Put the dog back in the bag. Well, now the cop comes close to me. He says, my God, you reek of marijuana. <laughs> so, so I said, I said, well, yeah, I just smoked two joints coming here. <laughs> but again, I've got nothing on me. You know, everything's in that bag. Put the dog back on the bag. Puts the dog back on the bag. The dog sniffs the bag all over. Nothing turns again and knocks in the wallet. I look at the officer. And, of course, people around me are listening and hearing this. I look at the officer and said, Officer, I think you need to retrain your dog. <laughs> Breaks the dog off of me and walks away. Doesn't ask for any identification. Nothing. So there's a story of being a federal. Some of the things you can get away with a federal patient. Another time, I'm, I'm paying a toll. I... Near my house, so I just lit a joint. It was cold, so the window's up. So we get to the, the toll booth, and you got to throw a quarter in a basket. Okay, a lot of people running. Okay, we run, they don't pay the quarter. So I slowed down. I rolled down my window a little bit. I threw the quarter in. The light turns green. I go. There was a motorcycle cop against the building for people who didn't pay the quarter. Well, when I opened the window, the smoke. Whoosh. <laughs> Next thing you know, I pick, the light turns green. I go, there's lights that turn on, and he pulls me over. I go to get out of my Explorer, and the guy goes, keep your arms and legs where I can see them. <laughs> out me out, keep them outside. So I'm sitting there, he comes around, he's got a gun on me. 
Okay, he's got a gun. I mean, this was the first. He's got a gun on me. He said, get out of the car slowly, and, and you're under arrest, and go leave in the back of the car. Okay, so I went to the back of the car. He's now looking at me and trying to look at the joint hands tray. <laughs> Grabs a joint, pulls out, and says, boy, I'm good. I smell this when you got under arrest. You're under arrest. I said, officer, you are good, but no, sir, I'm not under arrest. Uh -huh. He said, what do you mean? So he comes to the back. I said, can I, you know, can I stand up? He said, with your arms in the air. Right, officer, I'm one of the federal patients, okay? I get the marijuana from the federal government. What proof do you have? In my front pocket, because I wasn't reaching for anything, I've got a baggie with another 10 joints in there with a prescription. Anyway, so I pulled it out. I hand it to him. And again, I hand it to him. And he takes it. He's got the gun on me. <coughs> this looks official. <laughs> so officer says, and he, you know, and he said, he said, but you can't drive with this. I go, well, yes, officer, I can. I showed him the protocol. It says I can operate dangerous machinery as long as I'm not intoxicated. Since I get no euphoria, that was it. So then he said, how many people in the country can do this? I said, well, there are only four of us left in the country that can go. Well, there was five of us, but I'm the only one of the five that drives. Gee, I wish I was that lucky motto. <laughs> so he let me go. They let me go. Uh, let's see. What's another another interesting story? Uh, there's a lot of them, of course, you'll read about in the book. But the point is this. I've tried to lead the way to try to show the right way a patient does things. And it's, and it's worked. I mean, y'all are best, y'all are proof of that, but it has worked. You know? And so, therefore, you just need to carry on with what I've done. And set a good example. So now, with that, I think I'll take any questions anybody has. What do you do with the 150,000 joints a year? No, 120,000 I've gotten in the 28 years. Oh. No, because again, 300 every 25 days, okay? So if you, if you just, that's about 4,000, 4,500 a month, a year, about 4,500 a year. So you multiply it out. I smoke them. That's what I do. And I even can keep the roaches, and I re-roll the roaches, and I re-roll the marijuana. So they're in, they're in uh, marijuana heaven right now. <laughs> yes? Occasionally, seeds do grow. I'll tell you that story. Uh, I mean, occasionally seeds in there, but not that often. It used to be you get a lot more seeds in there from the older batches. But one time, I had my wife had a flower pot on our, on our porch, and I took about 25 seeds and just threw them in there because I never going to plant my life. Sure enough, gamma's like all 25 didn't sprout. Okay, and these things are growing, and they get about yay big. And I'm thinking, well, you know, that's kind of neat looking. You know, I'm not going to do anything. So my wife and I'm working now at a brokerage firm about five minutes from my house. My wife calls him one day and says, Irvin, the police have surrounded the entire neighborhood. They're going through all the backyards. They're looking for somebody. And I'm thinking, oh, shit, I've got those in my back porch. Okay, they walk through my backyard. They see these. Bad enough, I might get arrested for growing marijuana. Okay? But even worse, of getting accused of growing government marijuana. I mean, if you're going to grow something, grow something decent. <laughs> so I don't want to be embarrassed by that. So I, I, was able to, I was able to get into the neighborhood in the back area, go and pull those plants out and throw them away. So, yeah, we do get seeds, but that's the only time I ever did anything with them. <laughs> so, any other questions? Well, I think you all have been a great audience. Appreciate your reception. I also want to thank again the people from Montana and what they've done, the great job they've done for bringing everybody together. 
And I'm hoping that this will be the first of many, many more annual events that they have. And each year grow into where one day you've got one of the best organizations in the country. And everybody come and get my book.